Well, it's good, this evening. it's good to see you this evening, and thanks for coming. We have reached that point in Genesis uh, where we're coming to a story which a lot of people have heard about. It's the story of the global flood, Noah's flood, you may have uh, heard it referred to. And it, it's the story of how life on earth was almost extinguished. So it's a flood which destroyed almost all life on earth. And then that raises the question, if it was as drastic as that, how come human life and animal life have survived? And this story in the book of Genesis, particularly in chapter 6, which we'll be reading from, and uh, subsequent chapters, give us the answers to these questions. Now, there are, I want to look at this story. The, the outline of the story is the world had become so evil and corrupt that God almost wanted to reboot his plan, to wipe life out and start again. And so he was prepared to do that by having a massive flood to submerge all life. But there was one family one man in particular who God did not want to destroy, a man who trusted him. And so God used him to save his family, seven others, and they were rescued through the destructive flood. And basically, the human race as we know it today are all descendants from that one man and his family. So there are four particular questions I would like to um, to answer, at least to ask and to try to answer. The first is, what actually happened in this story? Was it just a local flood that submerged a few towns in the area where Noah lived? Or was it truly global? Did it affect the whole world? And secondly, what was its effect? Is there any evidence of this? Next. Why was such drastic action necessary? If God instigated this, I mean, it sounds very harsh to wipe out practically all life. Why was that necessary? Thirdly, how did human life and animal life then survive? And we are given details on that. And then I'd like to end by asking this question, what is the, its relevance to us today? Is it just history, or is it history looking forward? So, let's take the first question. What actually happened? And this particular question, was it just a local flood, or truly was it truly global, and what was its effect? I was listening to the news a few days ago, and some of the newspapers uh, were reporting that uh, one of the people in charge of the rescue effort after the floods in Yorkshire, described the flooding as almost biblical. And that caught my attention. I thought, has he ever read his Bible? I mean, it's, it is devastating uh, for families whenever the water level maybe rises a few feet and floods their homes. I, I'm not trying to, uh, to denigrate or, or to downplay the personal implications of that. But a little bit of flooding like that 
compared to what we're going to read about tonight, people just have no idea what the Bible actually describes. So let's read in Genesis chapter six, sorry, Genesis chapter seven, the description of what actually happened when the flood waters came. And in verse 20, we read this, chapter seven, verse 20. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. That's about 25 feet. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, people and animals, and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Now, if you just take the description at face value, it does claim quite categorically that all life on earth, apart from a small group, apart from those in the ark, was wiped out. It doesn't read as a local flood. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm doing this is I had a, entered into a little debate with a good missionary friend of mine, a fine Christian, but in his efforts to reconcile the Bible with what is generally accepted as science, he uh, was telling other believers that this was just a little local flood that affected the region where Noah was. And I took issue with him and uh, got a rather stony reply. So I, I thought I would just take the opportunity to practice with you just one or two small arguments as to why I personally believe that the Bible's description of this flood is indeed global and worldwide. Here's a picture of the earth today, taken from space. Now we can only see half the earth from that view, but as you can see, it's completely covered in water. If we move to a different angle, say from the south, you can see, again, half of the earth completely covered in water. Antarctica, which is, we can see in the middle, completely covered with ice. Really, really thick ice. Over 70% of the earth's surface today is currently flooded. Flooded to a much greater extent even than is described here in Genesis, if you like. Because the average depth of the sea, the average depth over all the world, is two and a quarter miles. That's how deep 70% of the earth is covered in water. The maximum depth of the sea is nearly seven miles. I suppose what I'm trying to tell you is there's an awful lot of water on our planet. Most of it is already submerged. Most of it is still flooded to a vast extent. So it's not unreasonable to think that the whole world, the whole earth at one time was covered in water. And I'll give you more reasons why that uh, is perfectly reasonable to believe from just the geological evidence. And the Bible's description that life being wiped out, almost all life being wiped out, 
You might say, well, we're scientific, we don't believe that. But let's just look at what the scientists tell us. Because the evolutionists will tell us that there have, in fact, not just been one massive mass extinction, but five of them. They look at the layers of the rocks that have been deposited. They see the vast numbers of fossils in there. And they say, yes, there have been extinctions. But they separate out the layers into five mass extensions. Actually, it's highly likely, much more likely, that those layers were all deposited as a result of the flood. So rather than being five separate extinctions, they're all referring to one massive extinction. Now, let's just look at the scale of what scientists, evolutionary scientists, tell us about these extinctions. The first one wiped out 86% of all species on the Earth. The next, 75%. The next wiped out 96% of all species on Earth. The next, 80%. And the last one, which included the dinosaurs, they say was triggered by an asteroid that struck the Earth and wiped out 76% of the species of life on Earth. Now, just remember that these are cumulative. So the first one wiped out 86%, if this is right, 86% of the species. The next 75% was 75% of what was left, and so on. So let me, let's just work out uh, how that uh, boils down to. Think about how many species were left. Now, this assumes that there were no species appearing between them. But if, if in fact, these five uh, layers were really all simultaneous, then that's reasonable. So after the first one, only 14% of species on Earth would be left. After the next one, only a quarter of that, which is 3.5%. After that, the third one, we've only got 0.14% of the original life, then 0.028, and lastly 0.00672. Now once I start seeing zeros like that, I lose all track. So let me put it like this. Supposing at the start there were 15,000 species. Just, this is just going to be for simplicity. But if we then look at the effect of these extinctions, we get that after the last one there would be only one species left on Earth. Now, there obviously would have been more than 15,000, I dare say. But that's the extent that geologists tell us about the extinction of life on this planet. And though the remains of all those, uh, those uh, animals are, they were uh, fossilized mostly in water. So nobody denies that there have been massive extinctions. It's just a matter of whether it all happened in one extinction, which is the, by far the simplest explanation, or whether it happened in several. I have to say that scientists are a bit loath to take the simple view because that would be too close to the Bible. Let me just give you more evidence as to why I think this was global. The extinction, the, the flood was global. If you think about oil deposits, they're all over the world. Now, how is oil formed? Well, it's formed from living creatures that have died and have been compressed. I mean, even if you think of gas and shale, likewise, which aren't included in this, and coal. And that's all over the world, and still a lot that we haven't discovered yet, under the oceans, uh, under uh, land masses and the continents. All those 
were formed by animals that once were alive but died. So I was just reading or watching a scientist recently saying that all the coal on the world in Earth was formed at the same time. It was formed once. There's been no coal formed since then. So in some of those oil wells, the oil wells that we have dug so far, are, lie under two to three miles of rock. And even that rock is uh, under over one mile of seawater. So how did all those creatures die and then get covered by two or three miles of rock? Something really devastated, devastating happened on our planet <clears throat> after life was developed and after it was flourishing. And it was not just a little local thing. This, as you can see from the map, is all over the world. I just mentioned this last little piece of evidence. I took this photograph myself in, South, in Peru, up the Andes, in a town called Cajamarca. And up there they have a little museum of fossils that they have found in the region. Fossils of sea creatures. 9,000 feet above sea level. 100 miles inland. Now, what does that tell us? Well, it doesn't tell us that the sea at one point was 9,000 feet higher than it is now. What it does tell us is, at that time, the ground that eventually rose up to become mountains was much lower and indeed was covered by the sea. And then the mountains uh, formed from that. And there are very good scientific explanations of how mountains were formed. Uh, one that uh, seems to fit the facts best, I, I was in contact with the author of a paper who wrote about this, explaining what is called the Ramsey Collapse, that when you have a planet big enough and it's got a crust, the gravitational force sucks the mantle in but puts intense pressure on the crust of the Earth. And they have calculated that if the radius shrinks, which it has to because of the pressure, the only way for the surface area to go is upwards. And that's what formed the mountains. And he said that mountains were formed in seconds. Not millions of years, but you can calculate the effect of that, that the mountains, he said, formed in seconds. So what seems to have happened before the flood, we didn't have the mountain ranges that we have now. The, there may have been hills, it does speak of mountains before that, but they would have been much lower. And so you wouldn't have needed so much water, you wouldn't have needed 9,000 or 28,000 feet to cover all the mountains. It would have been much less than that. And uh, so it's quite reasonable in those circumstances to consider that there was a worldwide flood. So I do believe that the Bible is perfectly accurate in describing a flood that wiped out all the earth. So if it was 25 feet higher than the highest mountain, no life could have survived. There are vast animal graveyards at the top of, of mountains that have been discovered there. But even that would not have been high enough. Now, so let's take it then, if just for a moment, that there was a global flood that would have wiped out practically all life on Earth. <clears throat> Why do we still have humans? So how did human life 
and animal life survive? But first of all, let's look at the question of why it was necessary. Because the Bible is quite honest about this. It says God did this. This was not just a natural tragedy, although it was that, but it was something that God had said he was going to do. Well, the Bible tells us in Genesis 6 why this was necessary. So let me read you some verses from Genesis 6, from verse 5 to verse 7. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The thinking of people, just from that verse, is utterly corrupt and evil. Every inclination, every tendency was evil of the thoughts of the human heart. It was only evil all the time. You can't get more uh, complete descriptions of that. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. And later then, in verse 13, Scripture says, So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So from that text, we can uh, see some of the reasons why drastic action was necessary. Humans had obviously corrupted life on earth far beyond what we know today and what we have today and what we can imagine even today. People in those days lived much longer. We're talking 900 years. Nowadays, some people tell, scientists tell us we only use a small part of our brain, perhaps a tenth of its full capacity. Imagine people with using the full capacity of their brain. They don't get old at 70 and start to decline, or even earlier. Living hundreds of years, but all their thoughts, all their intelligence goes into this. What evil can we do? What violence can we carry out? Planning evil, planning violence. People living to that extent with such intelligence, it's hard for us to imagine just how evil and corrupt the world had become. And some of the earlier verses that we, uh, David uh, Earnshaw read to us last week suggests that the evil went beyond simply violence uh, and murder and things like that, but crossing boundaries in God's creatorial order. Uh, I read of some experiments at Cambridge where people were, scientists were mixing human life or animal life with plant life and trying to create new types of creation, new types of creatures. That sort of thing can be done, I dare say, with expert crossbreeding, with very intelligent people. It doesn't necessarily need a lot of technology. But if you were to do, put together humans and animals, it, it, it's revolting to us the thought of that. But at this time, they would think of that as a great idea and would have explored ideas uh, such as that. So humans were being corrupted. Even the human race was becoming corrupted. 
and the future of the human race was at risk. I mean, they were in danger of wiping themselves out. The violence was such as that. We live in an age where we know how that's possible now with atomic bombs. But most people who are killed in wars are killed just hand-to-hand fighting. Uh, and that's the vast uh, number of casualties. So it's quite possible that it becomes so violent that the human race was in danger of wiping itself out. And there are times when God must judge. This was God's creation. He was responsible for it. He felt responsible for it. And he wasn't giving up on his plan, but he was prepared to restart. Well, what he wanted to do was to save the future of the human race and the animal kingdom. He was prepared to start all over again, recreate human beings. But there was one family that he was prepared to save and he did not want them to die as collateral damage. And if you something in you says, but it's not fair, that's cruel of God to kill so many people, that part of the human race, just to save a small group and to save the race. Well, let me tell you about a man I know. <clears throat> you may think this is very cruel, but somebody who trusted him came to him and he took a saw and a knife and he sawed off the man's leg. I don't mean to shock you, but that's what he did. It was brutal. Now, if, on the other hand, I told you that he was a surgeon and the pe- pe- person who trusted him had uh, septicemia and had um, poison in his leg that was gradually spreading up, if the doctor had done nothing, given him a few paracetamol, the man would have been dead. But to save his life, he had to amputate a significant part of the man's body, just to save his life. And God sometimes has to do that. And he had to do that with the human race at this particular time. The human race had become so corrupt and diseased that God had just to cut out that one bit that was still uncorrupt and rescue it. The only way he could do that was to wipe out the rest of the human race. You may say, but that's cruel. Well, the alternative was that the human story would have ended at that point. Now, I mentioned that when you think of the scale of this flood and how high the waters were above the mountains, there was nowhere you could hide. How come humanity survived? Well, let's read God's plan which he gave to Noah. This is what we read. God said to Noah, make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Now, maybe you don't know what an ark is. An ark is just another word for a box. The ark of the covenant was a box. You might say, well, why did God not tell him to build a boat? Well, I think this is evident. The fact that he used the word ark is evidence of the authenticity of this record because up to this point it's likely that at this time the earth was all one land mass the continents as we have them today seem to fit together and may originally have been one land mass they wouldn't have had boats they hadn't rain before uh, at this at this point <clears throat> so they wouldn't have known what a boat was so god just tells noah like, build a box Noah might have said, well, I've built boxes before, yes. And God said, build one 525 feet long. 
at which point Noah perhaps nearly had a heart attack. So look at the description. Uh, Build yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch, that's tar, inside and out. That would be to make it waterproof. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all round. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. This is an engineering description of this very first, what was probably the very first boat. It took him about a hundred years to build it with his family. And I dare say it became a tourist attraction because nobody knew what on earth it was for. Because they didn't know what boats were, what they looked like. Noah didn't know it was a boat. He was just told to build this box. He wouldn't have known even much perhaps about floating, although perhaps he built prototypes of it as engineers do to get the balance right. God doesn't tell him how all the engineering details, he relied on his own intelligence. But God's plan was to build this massive boat. If you're wondering what size it is, well, if you compare it with the Titanic, Titanic was about 882 feet long. I'm just looking for Richard, who's the expert on this, this sort of thing. Noah's Ark was about 525 feet long. Um, now, it says it was 300 cubits. The Bible talks about cubits and then old cubits. Old cubits were a bit longer than ordinary cubits. Easy way, if you don't have a tape measure, to measure the length of things is to use the distance between your elbow and your hand. That's one cubit. <clears throat> but old cubits were longer, perhaps because before the flood, people were bigger. And so the distance from here to here may have been about 21 inches. So that's how I get the calculation of about 525 feet. It's about 60% or so of the length of the Titanic. Approximately the same width with only three decks. No. <clears throat> so that was it. The passenger list was Noah, seven members of his family, and samples of all the animals. Now, I will not go into detail of how that would be possible, but it's quite possible to get all the species if you choose the species that generate them all. So if you think of dogs, you could get all the current dogs from a pair of wolves. They have the genetic material to produce all the dogs. Likewise, cats, you wouldn't need lions, tigers, leopards. You just need a pair of, well, the most wild cats that are most rich in genetic uh, diversity. So, there were all the animals. There may have been room for more people. But while Noah was building this ark, he preached to the people round about. He told them, God is going to judge this world. It is so evil and corrupt that he is going to judge it. He is going to destroy life. But I am building this as an opportunity for you to be saved, to be saved from that. The people even had been warned for generations before this. We heard last week about Enoch. Enoch's prophecies are recorded towards the end of the New Testament. And he said, I can see the Lord coming to judge ungodliness. Enoch had warned this world that because of its evil, God was going to come and judge the ungodliness 
that was so prevalent. But despite all Noah's preaching, it seems that no one listened. We read elsewhere that they just laughed at the thought. I'm sure it was quite a tourist attraction. People would have come to see it. It was certainly interesting. But they said, come and see this weird thing that this weird family are doing. And uh, they laughed at it. And when Noah mentioned that judgment was coming, they just laughed at the thought of that. They said, there is no God. They said, you've been telling us about this judgment coming for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, and nothing's happened yet. And they just had a good laugh at that. They totally dismissed uh, the concept of judgment and just felt secure enough and laughed at it. It's always a little dangerous to laugh at what the Bible says. It's not logical. And if you ever feel inclined to mock some of the ideas in that, you should look much more carefully at it and look at the reasons for that. Because the time came whenever Noah and his family disappeared. They had actually gone into the ark. The people probably wondered, oh, they've gone, set up a commune somewhere, gone somewhere else, but they just disappeared from sight. God had told them to go into the ark. God had closed the door and the door sealed up. It was impossible not only for people to get in, but for people to get out. Noah was completely safe. Even if he changed his mind, well, he was still completely safe. God kept him completely secure. So that is what happened. And then the floodwaters came. Not only was there water from above, vast quantities, but it seems that the surface, the crust of the earth split, perhaps triggered by a huge asteroid, we don't know, but the, the crust of the earth split and there was vast reserves of water that came up. Again, the same uh, scientists that I mentioned earlier had calculated that with a planet uh, big enough, as big as the earth or Venus, but not as big as, not, not like Mars, but on a bigger planet, the radius of the planet can shrink by 30%. That's a huge uh, effect on the surface of the earth and on the crust of the earth. And the water that was underneath came up and flooded it, flooded the earth so that the uh, water rose to about 25 feet at least above the highest point of the earth. And they were in the ark for about a year and then the waters gradually subsided. Some of them maybe sank down back below the surface of the earth and uh, Noah then came out to discover a whole new world. There were mountains, really high mountains. He came out on Ararat and he probably was frightened as he looked down from the mountain. Uh, much, much higher than anything he'd seen before. There were seas that he had never seen before. Rivers, he had probably never, there probably was no rain before the flood. A whole new world. It was now extremely productive. Before the flood, uh, the earth was very unfruitful and unproductive. But now it was extremely productive. The frustration that they had experienced before, that uh, his grandfather had uh, complained about, was now gone. And farming was now a delight. So it was a whole new world because of that.
Now, let's just end with this question. What's the relevance for us? The flood and Noah is mentioned several times. The Lord Jesus mentioned it. But I want to focus on one person's use of this story, using this as a picture, and that's Peter. Peter refers to... uh, Just back one moment. Peter refers to the flood in both his letters. He wrote two letters. And Peter, I suppose, was qualified because he was a fisherman. He had sailed in boats. He nearly drowned himself uh, several times uh, that we read about in the Gospels. And so he was quite conscious of the story of Noah. In his first letter, Peter uses the picture of the ark and the flood as a picture of Christ. This is the story that he he refers to. He talks of the judgment for sin that was justified in coming on the whole world. He said that when Christ died, when he suffered and died for us, the judgment, God's judgment on the sin of the world fell on Christ. The ark went through the flood. All the water that came down, came down on top of the ark. But it survived and it protected everyone in it. In the same way, Christ came into this world. And when he was on the cross, all God's judgment on the evil of the world fell upon him. And he took it to shelter people, to save people. And who is it who are saved? Well, Peter and elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about those who are in Christ. As though Christ is like the ark who saves us. And if we are in Christ, then like Noah and his family, we are protected, we are safe, we are saved. So we are safe from judgment. And Peter then refers to the resurrection of Christ as almost ushering, just as Noah was ushered by the ark into a whole new world, a productive, fruitful world, so too Christ's resurrection brings people, not only saves from judgment, but brings people into a whole new world of eternal life here and now. So that's the first uh, application of Peter. In Second Peter, then he takes this picture in a different way, and he uses the picture of Noah and the flood as to refer to Christ's second coming in the future. So in First Peter, he uses it as a picture of Christ's first coming. In Second Peter, it's a picture of Christ's second coming, of when Christ is going to return to this world. And Peter could even see in his day that the world was becoming increasingly evil. But there is coming a time when the evil in this world will be way beyond what we have even today. And they, as in the days of Noah, will mock the idea of God judging the world. But there's coming a day when the believers who are in Christ will be taken away. The world may not know what's happened. They may think we've all gone off to some recluse somewhere. But we'll be taken from sight as the Lord himself comes and takes the church out of this world. And at that point, the door is closed. And in scriptural terminology, that is the start of the day that will end with Christ coming to judge the nations that have remained. And it will lead eventually to a new heaven and a new earth. So, the story in Genesis 
is like in seed form the story of Christ's first coming to take the judgment to save people from the judgment for sin but for those who refuse to repent it is a picture of the final judgment for those for whom God can do nothing and with whom God can do nothing who even when they're faced with all the evidence refuse to believe God refuse to listen to God and prefer to suffer the consequences of their own evil. So it's a serious warning to the human race, even tonight. But to each of us, it is a warning to us, and also an encouragement. To realize that now the door of the ark, if you like, is still open. And people who do not believe yet in Christ, the opportunity is still there to come in and to accept God's salvation in Christ, to see that Christ has taken the punishment for all of us and to identify ourselves with Christ and allow ourselves to become in Christ. But to those who mock and scorn the idea that God has the right to judge, it's a solemn warning, this story. God holds back his judgment because he wants people to repent. But there will come a time when the point of no return, as it were, is reached and when the, the final day of the Lord is triggered and God's judgment will come on this earth. Thank you, Danny, for opening God's word to us this evening. And we're going to take time just to sing one final hymn. Um, it's number 433 in the hymn books, but will be on the screen behind me as well. Um, and the first two verses of There is a Redeemer says, There is a Redeemer, Jesus God's own Son, precious Lamb of God Messiah, Holy One, Jesus my Redeemer, name above all names, precious Lamb of God Messiah, O for sinners slain. We'll take time to sing this hymn and then after which Danny will close our service in prayer.
Our Father, we thank you that your word shows to us that there is complete consistency in your plans for this world, that those early chapters of Genesis, far from being random, reveal to us the very heart of your plan and your love and your desire to save people from our own wickedness and sinfulness. We pray, Father, that your word would speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.